Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Exodus chapter 26. Exodus chapter 26. I'm going to do something. I'm going to get some Kleenex real quick. There's something about singing that song, Is He Worthy, that brings, brings some tears. Exodus chapter 26. You know, I've been in pastoral ministry almost 25 years in church life. And over those years that I've ministered and counseled with people, I've met with families who've lost a loved one and had to sit there and counsel people during that. I've sat with people when they've had marriage struggles. I've talked with families who've had wayward children, debilitating illnesses, all manner of issues related to relationships and life. And there's one fear that comes up time and time again when I talk to people. It never fails. I hear this a lot from believers. It's the fear of being alone. The fear of losing someone you love. The fear of being abandoned. The fear of being alone. Maybe you're single here this morning. And you think to yourself, I'm never going to get married. I'm going to be alone the rest of my life. Maybe you're a teenager here this morning. And you as a teenager have made the choice to live for Jesus, to not compromise like your friends have, and you find yourself in those high school hallways lonely because you're the only one standing up for Jesus. Maybe your spouse is struggling with health issues. And you're worried about their future. And you, you wonder what's going to happen if my, my spouse dies. I will be left all alone. I'll be lonely. Maybe some of you here are struggling in your marriage. And you have that, that feeling in the back of your mind, that thought in the back of your mind, that, that maybe, just maybe, your spouse is going to be unfaithful to you. And they may leave you for somebody else. And you will be all alone. Maybe as a child, you were abandoned by a parent or a loved one. And from this day all the way back to that time as a child, you felt abandoned. You felt alone. It's caused you anxiety. You know, loneliness is an, epic, is an epidemic in America. Back in 2018, the health company Cigna did a major study of Americans and loneliness, and they surveyed more than 20 thousand adults. That's a lot. That's a, that's a huge sample size. 20,000 adults, 18 and over. And surprisingly, here's what they found. Loneliness affects the younger generations more than it does the elderly. You want to know out of all the generations, what was the loneliest according to the study out of all the generations? The loneliest was Generation Z. 
those between ages 18 and 22 were the loneliest generation out of those 20,000 adults. Behind them, not far behind them, were the millennials, ages 23 to 37. Now you would think, with all of the technology, with Facebook, with Instagram, with all of the smartphones and devices we have, where there's so much connectivity between people, that the younger generation would have it figured out what it means to be relational and have friends. But what the studies are saying is that the younger generation is very, very lonely. And it goes through all generations, as a matter of fact. And all of us can relate to loneliness. We, we can relate to that feeling of being, being abandoned, being left alone, loneliness. Now, now, why do I bring up loneliness? What's the point of bringing up loneliness this morning? Well, as I thought about this passage of Scripture this morning, I want us to kind of take a journey through the book of Exodus where we've been so far. So we've been in Exodus for a long time. And you remember the story way back, I don't remember how many months ago, that God delivered the Israelites out of Egyptian bondage. And so there was the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea. The nation got to have water come gushing out of the rock. God provided for their needs. They had manna and quail in the desert. And then um, we're at this point in the story where Moses keeps going up and down the mountain. And what's the big deal with Moses going up and down the mountain? He seems to always be going up there and coming back. And, And I thought for a moment, think about the Israelites for a moment. What would be their fear? They're in the wilderness. God saved us. And God really likes Moses because he talks to Moses a lot. Moses keeps going up in the mountain and coming back. But God is is way up there. He's so distant. He's, He's in that cloud up on the mountain. And he's got a good relationship with Moses. But what about us down here? What about just the average Joe Israelite? What if God saved us? And what if God brought us here into the desert only to abandon us? What if God were to leave us? What if God doesn't really want to live with us? I mean, God seems so distant. He seems so glorious. He's, he, maybe he really doesn't even care about us. He's up there in that glory cloud, and, and he really doesn't care about us. Now, here's the paradox for Israel. It's a beautiful paradox. As we've been seeing over the past few weeks, God is absolutely holy. He's transcendent. He's glorious. He dwells in unapproachable light. He is the great I am, the sovereign Lord, the King of kings, the creator of all things. This is our God. But yet at the same time, God loved his people in a very unique and special way. And you say, well, how did God show his love to his people? Well, God said, I'm making a promise to you, Israel. I'm going to live with you. I'm not just going to save you and leave you and abandon you. I'm going to live with you. Now, how would God live with Israel? Would he live up on a cloud on the top of a mountain? Would he just talk to Moses every now and then? How's God going to live with his people? Well, God's going to live with his people in the tabernacle, in the tent. That portable tent that we've been looking at over the past few weeks. And so before God even gets to the details on how to build the tent, he started with the most important piece of furniture inside the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant. 
So you got the Ark of the Covenant in the middle of the Holy of Holies. And there's a veil that takes you outside the Holy of Holies to what was just simply called the Holy Place. And there was the bread of presence that we looked at a few weeks ago. And then there was the golden lampstand that we looked at last week. And so now in chapter 26, the Lord is giving Moses detailed instructions on how to actually build the tabernacle itself. How do you build this tent? This big tent that was supposed to go around with them in the wilderness. Now, I don't want us to get bogged down in the details and lose the forest for the trees because this passage of Scripture is pretty laborious in all the details about how this tabernacle was to be built. So let me just kind of summarize real quick before we get to our main text. In verses 1 through 6, we instruct instructions on that inner curtain. In verses 7 through 14, we have instructions on the outer curtain. Verses 15 through 25, details about how the frame would be made of acacia wood. Verses 26 through 30, how the cross beams would be placed. Okay, So let's pick up in Exodus chapter 26. Let's start in verse 31, and let's just read to the end of the chapter and see how the Lord gives instructions about the tabernacle. Verse 31, Exodus 26. You shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasp and bring the ark, that's the ark of the covenant, of the testimony, in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy place. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. And you shall set the table... That's the table of the bread of presence outside the veil and the lampstand that we looked at last week on the south end of the tabernacle opposite the table. And you shall put the table on the north side. You shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen embroidered with needlework. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold and you shall cast five bases of bronze on them. Okay. The center of the tabernacle would house the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat, that atonement cover on it where the high priest would go in once a year on the Day of Atonement and smear blood seven times to sacrifice for the sins of the people in the most holy place. And then outside, you go through the veil, this blue, purplish, scarlet veil, and then there was what was called just the holy place. And you'd have the bread of presence and you would have the lampstand. So let's ask the question we've been asking every week as we look at these intricate details surrounding the tabernacle. What did the tabernacle represent for Israel? What was its purpose? Was it just a tent? Last week, was it just a candelabra? Was it just a menorah? Was it just a table with bread on it? Two very important truths about the living God that the tabernacle represents to Israel. First of all, It was a visible, a visible reminder that God would make his home with his people. Okay, go back to chapter 25, verse 8. Chapter 25, verse 8, the the entire instructions about the building of the tabernacle are given there succinctly in chapter 25, verse 8. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. 
This is where God chose to live with his people. He could have done it many different ways, but this is how God ordained he was going to dwell or live with his people in the making of the sanctuary. So this tent would be a visible reminder that God chose to live with them. But secondly, it was a visible reminder that this God was absolutely holy and radiates glory upon glory. Now, what would the Israelites see when they saw the tabernacle? They would see what was called the Shekinah glory cloud hovering over the top of the tabernacle. This glory cloud. Numbers chapter 9, 15 and 16. On the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle the tent of the testimony. And at evening it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. So it always was. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. So at nighttime above the tabernacle, there's this blazing fire that reminds people of God's holiness. During the day, it's a cloud of smoke, if you will. And so every time the Israelites would look at the tabernacle, there would be this glory cloud above it reminding them that God is glorious. God is holy. And it was perpetually on top of the tabernacle. Just like the the bread was perpetually on the table. Just like last week the the menorah was perpetually being lit. The, The cloud was perpetually on top of the tabernacle to let the people know God is always with them. He would never leave or forsake them. God is always with his people. He's the ever-present Lord. Now, we're going to get there eventually, I promise. Probably in March, but that's all right. Go to Exodus chapter 40. Go to the very last verses in Exodus. Exodus 40. How does the book of Exodus end? Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 through 38. This This is how the book ends. Okay, they've constructed the tabernacle. And God has given instructions in what to put in the tabernacle. What are they to put in the Ark of the Covenant? The Word of God. The Word. His Ten Commandments. The Word of God in the dwelling of God with the glory of God. Okay? Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was on it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys." The Shekinah glory of God. Now, what did the Israelites really, really want to see? We'll get to this eventually. Moses wanted to see the glory of God. The Israelites wanted to see with their physical eyes the glory of God. And God says, you can't see my glory. What you can see is my glory cloud, my Shekinah glory on top of the tabernacle, on top of this tent to let you know that I'm always with you. I'm, I'm a God full of glory. So I want you to think about these words. God dwelt in glory. God's word was in the tabernacle. And the people had seen his glory. So three words, okay? 
God's dwelling, God's word, God's glory. Can, can, right, I'm going to see if you're awake, okay? I don't normally do this on Sunday mornings, but we're going to have a little activity. Can you repeat these after me? God's dwelling, God's word, and God's glory. Okay, dwelling, word, and glory. Okay, so the tabernacle was where God's dwelling place was. The tabernacle was where God's word was placed in the Ark of the Covenant. The tabernacle was a place where God's glory was fully on display. Okay, so we can go home now because we know that's what the tabernacle was about, right? That's what the tabernacle was in the Old Testament, a place for God's dwelling, a place for God's word, a place for God's glory. But let's ask the deeper question that we've been asking every week. How does the tabernacle point us to Jesus? How is Jesus and the gospel and our salvation a fulfillment of the tabernacle? So with those words ringing in your ears, God's dwelling, God's word, God's glory, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. So turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. This is the prologue to the fourth gospel. And we find out a great theological truth, actually three, that we're going to look at this morning about Jesus. What was a tabernacle? A place where God dwelt, a place where God's word resided, and a place where God's glory was on display. So let's read together John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18, and see if you can see some words I've been reminding you of, okay? Chapter 1, verse 14, John. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. Okay, do you see those words there? Dwelling, word, glory. This is the the truth that John is hitting home. This is the apex of the opening verses of the Gospel of John, that Jesus in all of his glory, who was the eternal Son of God, left the glories of heaven to come and be born of a virgin, to take upon flesh. We call this the incarnation. Jesus left the glories of heaven, and he simply added humanity to his divinity. He didn't lose anything when he came to earth. He just simply added humanity onto his divinity as the God-man. Paul would say it this way in Philippians 2, 5-8. through Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. So why is Jesus coming in the flesh such a big deal? What's the point? Why is it such a big deal that Jesus left the glories of heaven and came in the flesh? Well, here's the point I want you to understand this morning. Here's the point. Jesus is the promise that God will always be with us and never leave us. 
Do you want the assurance that God is always with you? Just look to Jesus. Do you want the assurance that God's going to never abandon you? Look to Jesus. You want to see the full glory of God on display? Look to Jesus. He came at the fullness of time to be born in the flesh. That's why Paul says in Galatians 4, 4 through 5, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Three truths I want us to explore from the Gospel of John here in these verses about God's promise to you that he'll always be with you and never forsake you in the coming of Christ. Okay, here's the first. First of all, Jesus came in the flesh to display God's glory as his one and only son. Okay, I want you to think about the imagery we just talked about, about the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God. And notice what verse 14 says. The word, that's Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, the word became flesh. There's a couple of heresies that if you're not careful, you can, you can buy some heresies that are false teachings about who Jesus is if you don't understand what it means that Jesus became flesh. It does not say Jesus changed from being God and he changed into being a man. That's a heresy. Jesus did not change from being God and just change into being a man. He's always been fully God and he's fully man. It doesn't say that Jesus merely appeared to come in the flesh. He only appeared to be a man. These are two heresies that have been rejected throughout church history. Jesus has always existed as the eternal Son of God in heaven, fully God. He did not subtract anything to himself when he came to earth. He merely added humanity to his deity, thus taking on flesh. But I want you to notice the key word. The word became flesh and dwelt. Okay, I'm going to give you just a little bit of Greek this morning. The word dwelt in the Greek text means to tabernacle. Jesus came in the flesh and he tabernacled among us. Now, does that make sense based upon what I just showed you in Exodus? The word became flesh and he tabernacled. So here's the point. Jesus is the tabernacle. It's not some tent floating around in the desert back in Exodus. Jesus is the full dwelling of God bodily. And it's not in a place, a physical structure. It's in a person, Jesus Christ. And back in those days, who had access into the Holy of Holies? Just one guy, the high priest on one day. Now, who has access to Jesus? All of us through faith in him alone. We can live with God through Jesus. Okay, so the Word, where was the Word? The Word was in the Ark of the Covenant. Became flesh, tabernacled among us. And what does John tell us? We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Now, now John, you sound like you're studying, stuttering there. We've seen his glory, comma, glory. Why does John say glory, glory, twice? Where was the glory of God 
in the Old Testament tabernacle, hovering above the tabernacle in that glory cloud. Jesus is the full glory of God. Glory twice. Now think about the key idea here of Jesus bringing glory to God. All throughout the rest of the book of John, it is Jesus' mission to bring glory to his Father. To bring glory to God. It's a key thing. It's a key theme all through the book of John. In John 17, 1 through 5, Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane just hours before he's being betrayed. And listen to what Jesus is praying. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. That means the cross. The cross is now coming. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Do you hear Jesus' heartbeat? Jesus is saying, I'm about to go to the cross, and the one preoccupation of my heart is to bring glory to my Father. Is that your preoccupation? I mean, can you, can you seriously in your heart of hearts say, my one thing, that one thing I want to do in my life is to bring glory to my Father, to bring glory to my God. Jesus displays the glory of God bodily. Colossians 2.9, for in him the whole fullness, the whole fullness, the whole glory of, of deity dwells bodily. Jesus displays the full glory of God in his miracles. In his first public miracle, turning water into wine at Cana in Galilee, John 2.11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Ultimately, the cross displays the glory of God. John 12.27-28. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. What's this hour? It's the cross. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. If we want to see the full glory of God put on display, we look to Jesus. He is the tabernacle. He is the glory of God. He is the dwelling of God. He is the word of God. He is the fullness of who God is in the flesh. And notice what John says there. He is the only son from the Father. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us and we've seen his glory. Glory as the only son. Your translation may say only begotten son. It's a very interesting Greek word, monogenes. It means unique, special, one of a kind. It's used in John 3.16. Jesus, the one and only Son of God. Here's why this is very important. We live in a very spiritually confused culture where most people perceive Jesus as one of many ways to get to God. He's one of many. He's a good way. This will not allow you to say that. 
Because the way that Jesus is said here is the way John portrays Jesus is he's the one and only unique, one of a kind. There is no other son of God. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. Case closed. And he's full of glory. Glory as of the only one and only son. And what's he full of? Grace and truth. Grace and truth. Do you know what those two words are in the Old Testament? Steadfast love and faithfulness. The New Testament, grace and truth. Old Testament, steadfast love and faithfulness. Oftentimes those words are paired together to describe the character of God. God is the, f- what, what, what John's saying is Jesus is the fullness of God's has said in the Old Testament, that steadfast love and the faithfulness of God. He's full of grace and he's full of truth. You see those two words in Psalm 25, 10. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. Let me just stop and just address an objection. You may be here this morning and you've walked into this place for whatever reason, and I'm so glad you're here. I would not have you be any other place than here this morning hearing the word of God preached. And you may have come into this place and you may be thinking to yourself, I'm not really sure if I'm buying the idea that Jesus is God's only son, that he's the only way of salvation, that he's the only way. I mean, what about Buddha? What about Allah? What about all these other different spiritual paths that I, that I see people exploring? Can I just tell you that what Jesus says about himself is that he is the truth, the way, the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. So if you're here today and you're kind of struggling with what it means to, to accept Christ as the only way, would you just take Jesus for his words? Don't take my words. I didn't come up with them. Jesus came up with them, and he, just put it this way, if you can die and rise from the grave, you have the right to say whatever you want. And Jesus rose from the grave, and he could say whatever he want because he's Lord. And listen to him today. Trust in the one and only Son, full of grace and truth, which leads to the second issue this morning. So not only is he the, the one and only Son, who displays the full glory of God, who came to, to dwell with us as God's promise that he would never leave us or forsake us. But here's the second thing that Jesus has done for us. Secondly, Jesus came in the flesh to save us by grace instead of good works. Okay, look at verse 16. For from him, Jesus, his fullness, we have all received what? Grace upon grace. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, the law has its place in the Old Testament. We've been talking about the Ten Commandments all summer. God has given his law as a mirror to show us our need for Christ, but the law can never save. That Old Testament sacrificial system of sacrificing bulls and goats and rams, that can never save. It can never get to the conscience of the depth of your sin. Jesus comes to do what Moses could never do. Though The writer of Hebrews talks about how Jesus is greater than that Old Testament system. Jesus comes to save us by grace alone, not by anything that we can do. By the way, do you know that the best, think about the best thing you could do. The best act of charity, the best act of religion, the best thing you could do. Just think about that in your mind. What's the best thing I could do? If if I could do the greatest act of charity, the greatest thing, this would be the best thing I could do. Let me me tell you how Isaiah describes that. 
<clears throat> in Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like one who's unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Now, I have never said this from this pulpit, but I'm going to say it today. Do you know what that translates into a, a polluted garment? No, I'm not going to say it. I'm not, <laughs> I thought I was going to go there, but probably not. Um, your righteous deeds, the greatest things you could do, whether it's church attendance or obeying the Ten Commandments or helping an old lady cross the road or being spiritual, whatever it is you think you can do that's wonderful, that's great, that's righteous, the Bible says it is a polluted garment. It's a polluted garment. It's dirty. It's wicked. It falls short. You can't do enough good to be in God's good graces. Paul says in Galatians 2.16, For we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Jesus came to give us grace upon grace, the free gift of salvation. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. You can't do anything to get in God's good graces by what you do. It's merely by faith alone. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Have you experienced this grace? Or are you trying hard to kind of figure life out, doing your own thing? I go to church. I try to be good. I don't cuss, at least not every day. I don't kick my dog. I've never murdered anybody. Well, I'm glad you didn't murder anybody. I try to not tell lies. I try, I try, I try, I try, I try. Filthy garments. You and I cannot try enough. We cannot do enough. We cannot perform enough to get God to love us. And if that's the way it operated, it would be really bad news. Because anybody here done everything perfectly 100% of the time? It puts you in a hole of despair if it's up to you to somehow get to God. And right here, Jesus came to give us grace upon grace. To save us by grace. To save us by what he's done. You know, there's, there's two words, there's two letters that separate Christianity from the rest of the world. Religions. All the world religions have this one little word. What must I do? What do I need to do? Give me the list of things I need to do. I need to go to church. I need to do this. I need to pray this. What do I need to do in order to be saved, to be accepted by God? What do I need to do? Now, there's two little letters that are added to that that makes Christianity different. What has been done? D-O-N-E. What has Jesus done for us that we could never do? And that's die on the cross and rise again and save us by grace. So Jesus is the fullness of God, the glory of God, the one and only unique Son of God who came to live with us to give us grace upon grace. But there's a third thing here. It's very interesting. And I need to explain it because the language here in the original Greek is a little interesting. Jesus, third, Jesus came in the flesh to, quote, tell the whole story of God's plan for our salvation. 
What was the greatest desire of those Old Testament people? What did they want to do? They wanted to see God with their own eyes. They wanted to see God. Did God ever let anybody see him and live? Okay, look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God and lived. Seen God face to face. The only God who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. Now there's some little translation issues in there that make this a little bit difficult to understand. No one has ever seen God the Father. The only God, Jesus the Son, who's at the Father's side. Now this protects the Trinity here. Jesus is fully God. The Father's fully God, but they're two distinct persons. But how does it describe here where Jesus is in relationship to the Father? Jesus, in eternity past, has been at the Father's side. Some of your translations may say in the Father's bosom. Now, husbands and wives, you understand this. Okay, let me just ask. Don't, don't, don't confess here, but let's just talk about this. Um, husbands and wives... When you are on your bed at night, both of your heads on a pillow, close together, and you're talking about real life issues, and you're divulging secrets, and you're sharing your heart, we call that pillow talk. That's the most intimate discussions that any person can have as a husband to a wife in the bedroom. Those conversations are not reserved for anybody else. Even your kids can't hear them. There is a distinct, unique Intimate conversation between husband and wife on the pillow where your head may be on her chest and, and her chest is on you. However it is, you're, you're together. That's, that's the idiom. That's the expression here of Jesus' relationship to the Father in eternity past. They share this unique, powerful, close relationship in eternity past that we can never even understand. And here's a newsflash. God did not need us because he was lonely and he decided to create us because he, he didn't have anything better to do because he was lonely up in heaven. I've heard people say, yeah, God was lonely up in heaven, so he decided to cre create humans to, to, to keep him company. That's kind of a sad thing. God was never lonely. He has existed with Jesus in eternity past. But here's what Jesus has done. Jesus has made him known. Now, Exegete. That's a big word, exegete. That's an exegetical study. Every Sunday when I come up to preach, what do I do? I take the scripture, we go verse by verse, and I explain, I exposit, I open up to you what it says. I make it clear. At least that's what I hope I do every Sunday. That's called exegeting. That means making it clear, making it known, explaining it to you. That's the word that John uses for Jesus in relationship to the Father. Jesus makes God known. If you want to know who God is, Jesus is the narrator. Jesus is the one that explains him. Jesus is the one that puts him on display. Jesus is the one that's going to detail who God is. And the rest of the book of John, Jesus tells the whole story of who God is. And what God's plan is. John chapter 20 verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing you may have life in his name. 
have you come to that point in your life where you're believing in Jesus to have life in his name so that you can have the assurance that God will always be with you. He will never leave or forsake you. What is God's promise to you? That he'll never leave you or forsake you. What did God promise to the Old Testament Israelites? A tent. Well, that's kind of cool, God. It's a cool tent. It's a bunch of cool furniture in the tent. There's an Ark of the Covenant in the tent. There's this glory cloud over the tent. It's a cool tent, God, but it's kind of weird because I'm not really allowed to go in the tent because if I go in the tent, I'm going to get dead. And there's one guy that gets to go in the tent one day a year, and even that guy's got to be careful that he sacrifices for his own sins so he doesn't get killed. I like the tent idea, God, but it's kind of weird because I don't have access to you. I can see you from afar. I see the tent. I see the glory cloud. And I think, that's cool. But what has God done for you? He's given you direct access to the very throne room of God where you don't have to worry about being blown away, about being obliterated. God says, come into my presence. I'm the very living God. Jesus has provided a way. Come in and let's have a relationship. Don't stand off at afar. I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. Come on in. Have full access to me. And the writer of Hebrews puts it this way. Hebrews 10, 19-22. He's comparing what we have now with what the Old Testament saints had back with the tabernacle. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, through his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I love the imagery here. Jesus has cleansed you by his blood and now you have confidence to enter. You have assurance to enter. You don't have to be afraid. God will never leave you or abandon you or forsake you. You will never have to be alone ever again in your life because Jesus is giving you access. And what the writer of Hebrews says, okay, because that's true, let's draw near. Let's get close. Let's pour our hearts out before this God. Let's, let's give this God everything we got because he can take it. Let's approach. Let's draw near. You know, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, in a sense, we're drawing near to God. And so as we take the Lord's Supper and come to the Lord's table, I'm asking us to draw near with assurance, with confidence. And as we take the Lord's Supper today, let this be a reminder to you as you take the elements into your very body that Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. You'll never have to be alone because Jesus is God's promise to you. He's the tabernacle. He's the dwelling place. He is the glory of God. If you want to know who the Father is, look to Jesus and come to him with confidence. Not shrinking back in fear, not afraid, but let's come to him with confidence. And if you've never come to Jesus, you can't come to him with confidence because you know you have sin in your life. Let me just say this. Before we take the Lord's Supper, 
would you come in your heart to Jesus? In just a few moments, these elements are going to be passed around, and our people are going to receive bread, and they're going to receive the drink. They're going to receive these physical elements. I would say to you, if you've not received Christ into your heart, if you've not received Jesus, don't worry about what's going on with the passing of the plates. Your major issue is to receive Jesus, to receive him into your life, to come to him in faith. And if you've never done that, if you've never received Jesus before in your life, I want to encourage you as we get ready to pray here in a moment, to pray to him, to confess your sins, to ask him to forgive you, to to say, Jesus, I need you in my life. Jesus, I want you. Jesus, would you save me? And would you just come before Christ and ask him to do a work in your life? So let's bow our heads and let's draw near to Jesus, who is God's promise that he will always be with you and never leave you. Would you spend a few moments in silent prayer this morning? all know what it's like to feel alone, to feel abandoned, to wonder if things are ever going to change in our lives to where we'll have that person that maybe died or that person that abandoned us come back, and, and we know it's, it's permanent, it's final, it's not going to happen. But Lord, I'm so thankful that you made a rock-solid promise to us that you would never leave us, you'd never abandon us, you'd never forsake us. And how did you promise that? You sent Jesus. Jesus, you're the one and only Son of God, full of grace and truth. You dwelt among us to be the tabernacle, to give us full access to the very glory of God. And Lord, as I'm even praying and thinking about this, Do we truly understand what it means to have full access to the very glory of God? That you have every right to smite us, to kill us, to obliterate us to a million pieces and send us to everlasting hell and you would do us no harm because you are a just God. But you chose not to do that by giving us a way to have access to your very throne of glory through Jesus. And Lord, we we never take that for granted. We can approach you. That we can come near to you. That we can pray to you. That we can receive help in time of need from you. That you're a good heavenly father that loves us, that will never abandon us, that will never leave us. And so, Lord, as we take the Lord's Supper, as we come to the table that you've prepared for us, and we think about your body and your blood being shed for us and broken for us, would we afresh this morning be reminded that Jesus, you will never leave us or forsake us. We will never have to be lonely because you are the promise that God will always live with us, always dwell with us. Let us take the Lord's Supper with joy this morning, with full assurance of faith, with confidence. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.